Morning, church. Morning. Hey, some of you know my name. That was awesome. My name is Jeremy Hetzel. I'm the director of student ministries here at Family of Christ, and I am going to share God's word with you today. Thank you. Thank God. So we are starting today a new series. It is a new sermon series that should take us through end of May. And I'm very thankful because God provided this sermon series for us. Because if you've never preached in front of a bunch of people numerous weeks in a row and have to have something compelling and inspiring weeks on end, it can be a little daunting. And God shows up. And he provides. So I just want to pause for a second and say, thank you, Jesus, for the message that we have not only today, but in the next weeks to come. So our sermon series is entitled Independence. Independence. And when you think of the term independence, I think there's several things that come to mind. We think about Independence Day. We think about Will Smith. (laughs) We think about um, fireworks. We think about teenagers, right? Because teenagers want independence. And this is a good thing, right, parents? This is a good thing. Students learning how to live on their own, make wise choices, deal with situations in their own ability. When I think of the word independence, I think a lot about just like pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And I got this covered, I got this handled, I don't need no help. I can do this on my own. When I, when I try to think of what or who is a type of person that embodies the spirit of independence, I think of one person. Don't look now, Chuck Norris is right behind you. I heard superheroes read Chuck Norris comics. I heard at night the boogeyman checks into the bed for Chuck. I heard Chuck Norris's reflection won't even look him in the eye. I heard when cops need cops, they call Chuck Norris. I heard when Chuck gets in the water, sharks get out of the ocean. I heard when Chuck Norris is hiking, grizzlies look out for him. I heard Chuck Norris rides in water without the cycle. I heard Chuck Norris wears a hat to protect the sun. I heard medicine takes Chuck Norris to feel better. I heard what actually killed the dinosaurs was Chuck Norris. I heard cats say they have Chuck-like reflexes. I think he still got it. I'll bet you a buck he catches a salt shaker. You're on. Hey, Chuck! You owe me a buck. You can't always see what's coming, but when you choose United Healthcare, finding an in-network doctor that's close to home is easy. Heard cats have chuck-like reflexes. Too soon. Too soon. United Healthcare. Anyone like Chuck Norris jokes? I think they're hilarious. I hear Chuck has, I hear cats have Chuck-like reflexes. When Chuck gets in the ocean, sharks get out. Like, I just love them. They're hilarious. But, but Chuck Norris has reached like mythical proportions, right? Like, he can do anything. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't know, he doesn't need anyone to stand by his side because he can kick salt shakers in your face. Like, He needs no help. He is the embodiment of independence. Okay? Today, we are going to look at the story of Saul. And before we dig in, 
something I would like to point out is that Saul was the first king of Israel. So up until this point, Israel has had no king. They've always had a prophet or a judge to lead them. Now Saul is on the scene. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel 13. And we will be in and around 1 Samuel 13 because when When I teach, I love to be able to give context to what are we talking about or what's happened before so you understand some of the story. So 1 Samuel 13, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2 to start. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Now, if you just started reading in chapter 13, you go, who are the rest of the men? Who's he sending home? Why were they here? Etc. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Give a little context to where Saul came from and where these men came from. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. They say this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. Samuel is the prophet who anointed Saul as king. Samuel is also the same prophet who, when he was a little kid and was in the temple with Eli, God spoke to him. Same guy. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So the people of Israel want to be like other nations, and they want a king. We want a king. Okay, now go to 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 12, verse 12. It says this. So basically what's happened is Saul, Saul, Samuel has anointed Saul. Saul is king, and this is Samuel's like farewell. He's saying, My time has come. This is my farewell address. This is what has brought you to where you are today. Verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though though the Lord your God was your king. So Samuel has continually tried to say, why do you want a king? God is your king. Depend on him, not some man. Now, does anyone know from verse 12 who Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was? No one's ever heard of Nahash? Not a popular bedtime story? Okay. Let's learn about Nahash. Go to chapter 11. All right, so Israel is a nation. Ammonites are a nation. Philistines are a nation. These nations are all around Israel. And people look at Israel and they go, Israel's weird. Israel's different. They don't have a king. Their army's weak. We can take them. So Philistines set up some garrisons. Well, we're just going to control this area. (laughs) Don't bother. Don't mess with us. And then the Ammonites decide, dude, we, we want some of this action. We want in on this. So in the beginning of chapter 11, it says that Nahash besieged Jabesh Gilead, which that town is a town from the Star Wars um, universe, so it's really cool how it intermixes. It's a lie. That's a straight-up lie. Do not believe that. 
I just think it sounds very Star Wars-y. Okay, moving on. Um, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And so he says, hey, you guys, you're gonna do whatever I say. And the, and the people of Israel in that town say, well, well, we'll make a treaty, we'll make a deal, just don't mess with us. And he says this in verse two, but Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace to all of Israel. The Jabesh Gileadites say, mm, we'll pass. You don't sound like a very peaceful man. I don't think you'll work us a good deal. We'll pass. But they do say, can we, can we just send for help? Can you give us seven days? And for some reason, he lets them. I don't know if he was just so confident in his strength. I don't know what was up. But he says, okay. So they send messengers all around. So word comes to Saul, who is newly made king. Okay? And he says this, verse 6 of chapter 11. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces. Has anyone ever cut oxen into pieces? It's a little hard. Awesome, some of us have. That's pretty legit. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. So by God's power, 330,000 people show up to help this Star Wars town. Pretty legit. Pretty awesome. Okay? So they show up, and then what happens is they go middle of the night. Saul divides them into three companies, and they just annihilate them. They take them out. And, and who is to be given the glory for this victory? God. He's brought them all together. Some other things happen, etc. And now we come to our text for today. So we're back at chapter 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear! So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Two questions. Did Saul ask God if they were supposed to attack the Philistines? It didn't didn't say it. Is it possible that he did? Sure. Scripture isn't like exact all the way, but I would gather that he did not, because if you read in chapter 14, he does. And Jonathan does in chapter 14. So there's biblical evidence that, no, he didn't ask. Now, why didn't he ask? I think he was full of self-confidence. What had just happened? He'd mustered all these men, 
mustered, that's a good word. He mustered all these men, they all gathered, and then they attacked and they annihilated them, and I think Saul was on a, was on a high. I think he was like, we just took them out, we can take these Philistines out, we even only need like 3,000 men. We don't need 330, we got this. Booyah! And so they attack. They attack. Verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks in its pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Are they in a good spot? Are they depending or trusting on God? Are any of them like, yeah, God's going to be with us. We're going to annihilate them Philistines. No. They're all afraid. And why are they afraid? Because they didn't go to God. They didn't ask him, what are we supposed to do? What are you calling us to do? They depended on themselves instead of God. And then they were rightfully afraid. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Now here's the question. Why, why are they waiting on Samuel? Why was Samuel supposed to show up? First Samuel chapter 10. We're going to do, it'll be verse 8, but I'm going to give you a little background first. So this is before Saul has become king. Samuel finds him, anoints him with oil, and then is explaining what's going on, what's happening, what's, what's going to happen to you, what is God leading you to do, etc. He gets to the end of his kind of instructions, etc., and he says in verse 8, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Who is supposed to do the sacrifice? Samuel. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And when I do that after you've waited seven days, then I will come to you and tell you what you're to do. So he's coming with instructions and he's coming to give sacrifices to God for Saul and the nation. Okay. Now, back to verse eight. Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Verse nine, so he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. So who actually did the offering? Saul, who was supposed to? Samuel. Was Saul depending on himself? He was. He was like, I'm taking matters into my own hands. And now he's going to explain why he does this. Verse, we're at verse 9. So we're going to start at verse 8 again, and then we'll continue. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. 
And Saul replied, what I saw, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. There's three things he's doing in this. First, he's justifying his actions. Have we ever done that? Well, I, I, had, to, I had to take my sister's um, um, egg with jelly beans from Easter because we don't want her to get cavities. Right? Like, there's plenty of stuff that we justify and we say, well, I had to do this because I didn't have a choice. That's the first thing he did. Second, did you notice how he blamed Samuel? You, you didn't come at the time you were supposed to. You, you weren't where you said you would be. Did he show up on the seventh day? Yes. He came on the appointed day. He just didn't come soon enough for Saul. Saul was stressing. He was worried, and he acted out of his own strength instead of waiting on the Father. And then the, the third thing that he did was he treated God like he was a genie. If you look at the end of verse 12, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. Why did he want to seek the Lord's favor? So that they could win the battle. Uh, well, if I, if I put 50 cents in the machine, then I get a Dr. Pepper. So if, I, so if I say, God, I need this, then he provides it. So I'm just going to do the sacrifice and do the thing that I'm supposed to do so that we win the battle. Everything's okay. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know the true God. He's not loving the true God, and he's not depending on God. He's depending on himself. Verse 12, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Samuel replies, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. He started with 3,000. Now he's down to 600, and he's still counting his men. He's still maintaining, I gotta have enough men to keep me safe. He's still not depending on God. So here's my question. Is this how God calls us to live? We recognize that we are Americans. And it's good to be independent and be strong and have strength and take care of ourselves. We as Americans would agree with that completely. But how does God call us to live? Does he call us to live independently of our own strength? Or does he call us to live in a state of dependence on him? Independence or independence? God calls us to rest in him and to depend on him in all things. All things. Now because I gave you a video example of what it means to live or look like you are independent and full of your own strength? That's why I showed you Chuck Norris. 
What I want to do now is show you a video of what I believe it looks like to live in dependence of our Lord and Savior. Before I do that, I need to brief you on something. Has anyone here ever participated in the Ironman race? Marcus has. Go, Marcus. I don't mess with Mark. I do not mess with Mark. Beast. Um, so, so no one besides Mark? Um, so just so you know, if you were to compete in the Ironman, you would swim for 2.4 miles, which is long. I'm happy if I do a lap or two. Um, 112 miles on the bike. Anyone ever ridden 112 miles on the bike, one sitting? Well done. I have not done that. I'm proud of y'all. Um, and run a marathon. Anyone ever run a marathon? Sweet. Um, I have not and do not plan to. Um, so all of those things are supposed to happen in one day. One day. 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then a marathon after that, okay? You are going to see a video of a father and son team called Team Hoyt. Has anyone ever heard of Team Hoyt? Some of you have. So what the deal is, is that this son, Ricky, is a quadriplegic. He can't run, he can't swim, he can't ride a bike. As he's growing up, his parents discover that he feels alive and feels like a normal kid when he's running. But is he running? No, his dad's running. You are going to see about a five minute clip of an Ironman race, Ironman race, where Rick is competing in the Ironman because of his dad, Dick.
Do you see God's love for you? He wants you to depend on him that much. And so often in our culture, we say, I believe in you, God, I love you. But then we take it back. Whatever the situation is, whatever we're worried about, whatever we're stressed about, we take it back and we say, I can handle this. God wants me to handle this. I'm gonna walk this road on my own. No, God wants us to cease. Ricky, he got to lay in a boat. He didn't do anything. That's how God wants it to be. Ricky could have tried to help. He could have thrashed around in the boat and tried to help swim and it would have only hindered his dad. We are exactly the same way. When we are worried or stressed or concerned about things, God says, give it to me and I will provide. Don't depend on your strength. Don't depend on your wisdom. Don't depend on how you think it should go or what the world says. Depend on me and I will see you through. And we know we can trust that because he's done it already. He went through the cross. You think that one day was tough? That looked like a tough day. Jesus went through hell for us. We don't have to do it. Don't depend on yourself. I wanted to close with reading Psalm 46. It says this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is our God, the God of Jacob, our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Cease and desist. Be still and depend on God in your struggles. Depend on him. These next six weeks, as we continue this series on independence, my prayer is that we as a body would learn what it means to be dependent on Christ in all things, in all struggles, in all difficulties. May we depend on him to lead us and guide us. May we depend on him as our Lord and Savior.